Welcome to the MRI Cast. These podcasts focus on various current topics in MRI. We invite you to ask questions via the website and even suggest topics for future MRI casts. The opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect standards in clinical practices, nor should they be considered as medical advice. This program is made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Braco Diagnostics. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our first MRI cast of 2023. I'm Bill Faulkner. And I'm Kristen Harrington. We are so happy to have you join us uh, for this podcast. This podcast, as was previously mentioned, is sponsored by an unrestricted educational grant from Braco Diagnostics. We certainly do appreciate their support. Well, for this podcast, we are going to talk about protocol optimization, MRI protocol optimization. You hear, you know, you hear a lot of people throw that term around, optimize protocols. I, it's interesting. It, it kind of, you know, the, the first big question, you know, that we want to address is kind of optimize what, you know, what component of it would you want to optimize? I remember one time I had a somebody, and if you're, and if you're, if you're the list, if you're a listener that did this to me, uh, please, no, I didn't mean you any disrespect, but I had somebody send me an email one time and it said, our radiologists are unhappy with our cervical spines. Do you have any recommendations? And I wrote back, yes, kind regards, Bill. That was kind of like, and and he wrote back, or he, he wrote they told you nothing, and <laughs> so you wrote back nothing. I mean, it was like, sure, sure. I can help you, but you've given me nothing. Um, so I'm just gonna say, sure, I can help, but I don't know anything. Right, you know, it's like so. In fact, he wrote back and said, he wrote back and said, you didn't tell me anything, and I responded, you didn't tell me anything either. You know, I mean, because literally one of the one of the ways you could fix that is shoot the radiologist, right? Then that would take care of any complaints. I mean, I don't know that you don't want to do that, but you know, you could certainly do that. Um, <laughs> but you do you do have to think um, about what area you want. What we mean? What do you mean by optimize? What is what is it about the um, about the protocol? that you particularly want to change. And it has to do with everything that makes up, goes into image quality. Yeah. So I think that if everybody that's joining us um, for these podcasts, which are going really well, um, I, I think if you think about a triangle, so let's just take ourselves there. And at each different point, um, you put um, different things that we're thinking about in the mindset of optimizing a sequence, a, a protocol um, for a specific exam. And one's going to be your um, one point's going to be your contrast to noise ratio. One would be uh, the other point would be the signal to noise ratio. And then the other one's going to be your spatial resolution or spatial resolving power. And so, um, as Bill says, you know, when you go to the radiologist, and this has happened to me, um, and they'll say, well, the images just look like crap. Well, as Bill says, we don't have a crap meter. 
And so, um, you know, what does that actually mean? And so we want to make sure that you leave this podcast feeling empowered. And by that, I mean, I'm just going to take you to a gradient echo T2 of the cervical spine. And um, if you go to to the radiologist and they say, okay, these look like crap. And you say, okay, well, what are you looking for? And they say, well, you know, I'd like to see brighter fluid. Well, we know with a, a gradient echo, the flip angle controls the contrast. And so then you say, okay, now I know what I need to do. I'm going to go back and you would drop your flip angle back. And that's going to give you brighter fluid. Um, if they say, well, I need, you know, I'm not seeing enough detail. So then we would go to the point in the triangle, spatial resolving power, spatial resolution. And okay, so I need to look at pixel voxel size. Or, you know, is this going to be something with, you know, a signal to noise ratio? Um, is it also going to be a temporal resolving power? So you have to think, you know, was this exam fast enough? Are we looking at 3D or 4D time resolved? So all these questions should be going through your mind. And I know that right now that you're thinking about how many different times has this applied to different types of exams that I'm doing? So, Bill, what do you think about that approach? Well, yeah, I mean, you've got to, um, for example, uh, you, and I've had this happen to me when a radiologist says, you know, this, this sucks. Well, okay, in what way does it suck? And if they can't tell you, they go, well, I don't know, I just don't like it. Well, you know, that's when you tell them, I'm sorry, I, I don't have an anti-suck filter. Uh, you know, can't apply that. Um, and, but I think it is something to look at. Is it a contrast problem? Um, you know, there are also different techniques that you can use. And this is something people get stuck in a, in a rut uh, a lot of times. So going back to, say, the cervical, cervical spine uh, axial, typically you like a bright fluid type thing. So if you're, you know, wanting uh, brighter fluid, as Kristen said, you can reduce the flip angle. But the other thing you can maybe look at is maybe there are other pulse sequences in your library. Um, uh, not to use uh, too many vendor-specific terms here, but, um, for example, on a, a Siemens, there is a technique called MEDIC, and I forget what the acronym stands for. I think it actually is a technique that uses two different TE times, if I'm not mistaken. And somebody send me an email and correct me if I'm wrong on that, but it seems like that sticks in my mind. And I know GE's got a somewhat equivalent thing, and I just can't remember what it's called. But there are different flavors of these pulse sequences that you can pick. And, and in fact, from a gradient echo standpoint, if you think about it, from a gradient echo standpoint, the actual sequence you pick is picked based on the image contrast that you want to see. So there, there may be, you know, a, an answer is not simple as just changing something, but maybe you go pick, pick another pulse sequence. I think, Kristen, when we were kind of talking about the outline of this, you mentioned an example from a radiologist you used to work with dealt with using a new pulse. What ended up happening was um, we had a trauma patient come in and I was aware of the medic sequence. Uh, again, this is specific. I'm 
almost positive it's on multiple vendors called something different. Um, and it was just a 3D gradient echo approach that gave the bright fluid, but gave that um, a very um, high spatial resolution. And so, you know, she came in, it was an emergency. She was looking through the images and she's like, where in the world did you come up with this? And I'm like, well, it's one of the sequences that we learned about from the application specialist. And having done applications back in the nineties, the um, I'll say that many times I would go into facilities and I would say, well, you know, you have this technique, it's new, and, you know, there's a lot of trepidation about new sequences. And there's not just trepidation from the technologists. Many times we as technologists embrace, but um, sometimes the um, radiologists don't embrace. And so, um, you know, this sequence was not embraced. But once I showed the head of um, neuroradiology for MRI, it, it changed and, and it wasn't a, a time difference really at all within the sequence. Um, but as far as the detail, as far as the image quality, as far as, as far as the way that she was able to diagnose the patient was vastly changed. And so I think that we just need to be aware that when we look into the libraries, the clinical libraries, the um, protocol um, sets that are created and just stock protocols is how some people refer to them. Um, they're great starting points and they're sequences that are many times, and Bill, tell me if you agree or disagree, they're underutilized. Oh, absolutely. I think, I think a lot of this uh, occurs because uh, I've always had kind of a, <clears throat> a joke I've used on other, for other occasions and whatever, but for MR people, the thing I've always kind of said is, well, <clears throat> how many MR people does it take to change a light bulb? And the response is, change. What do you mean change? You know, we're not, we're not going to change. And people get, again, stuck in this rut of using this the same sequence. And so a cervical spine is just one example. And before we move off of this and another one, let me give everyone a piece of advice on cervical spine axials. Whatever sequence you're using, a really good measure of the uh, contrast uh that you're, you want for an axial cervical is if you can see the butterfly in the cord, the central canal of the cord, if you can see the butterfly as opposed to the surrounding tissues, remember that in the cervical spine, white matter in, in the brain, the gray matter is on the outside and the white matter is on the inside of the brain. But in the spinal cord, it's the exact opposite. The, uh, Gray matter is on the inside and the white matter is on the outside. And that's why you'll see, um, you know, MS plaques, you know, not necessarily in the central part of the core. They're in the white matter. And so you want to be able to see good gray, white contrast. And a measure of that is being able to see the central canal. It looks like an H or a butterfly. If, if the cervical spine, if the cord is just blah and you have no contrast between the gray and the white matter, then you don't have a good technique that would allow you to see uh, MS plaques. And, and while we're talking about cervical spines, let's talk about sagittal for a minute. And one of the best techniques for seeing MS plaques in the cervical spine is a sagittal stir. 
Um, I know a lot of people try to do have tried to do T2 flare in the spine, but that doesn't give you anything because that's not the con- you're not dealing with the same contrast that you have in the brain. The other problem with the T2 flare is that you have this long inversion time of a couple of seconds, and CSF moves in a couple of seconds, and that's why they don't work. They're, it's not the optimal sequence. But a stir sequence in the cervical spine is actually much better than a T2 fast spin echo. Um, so, you know, keep keep that in mind as, as well. Kristen, your thoughts on this before we move to another get off of cervical spines? Because I, I just something else came to mind and I wanted to bring that up. Well, you know, me being able to turn the microphone back on might be um, something that we could discuss. No, I, I think it's a good time to go ahead and, and transition over to other aspects of protocol optimizations. And maybe we, you know, talk about, you know, difficult exams. Maybe we talk about the thought process that a technologist goes through when they're asked to do something that they haven't done before. You know, Bill, what direction do you think that you like to go in at this point well i mean let's let's talk about um you know clinical situations optimizing for clinical situations and at the same time um i want to include in that is depend it it, it depends on what tool you're using or what what you're working on and then specifically i'm thinking 3t versus 1.5 so when we talk about optimizing for a clinical situation Let's let's talk about, for example, routine brain imaging. And um, I've got my I got my notes here going through. I've made them up. I've got actually a couple of papers I want to talk about here in just a minute. <clears throat> but anyway, for uh, for people on three T, uh, and I think most people have figured this out by now. Uh, spin echo or T1 weighted fast spin echoes for brain imaging suck at 3T. They're barely good at 1.5, but they're absolutely horrible at 3T. And that's because of the T1 times of of gray and white matter, the T1 times lengthening as field strength goes up. This is why you will find a lot of um, papers and, and a lot of stuff that you'll see published. People use things other than a spin echo or fast spin echo, standard spin echo, whatever, T1 in the brain, particularly at 3T. So uh, an inversion recovery, a T1 weighted inversion recovery uh, is a very good sequence for gray and white matter, as is a spoiled gradient echo, 3D spoiled gradient echo, as a matter of fact. So um, just that in general, let's take a look at clinical situations uh, that might uh you know, require you to uh, make a look at your protocol. And one of those um, that just come, immediately comes to mind is is MS. And in multiple sclerosis exams, most radiologists that um, I've seen, Kristen, let me know what you've seen on this as well, want a thin slice sagittal T2 flare, right? So have you found that to be pretty common? A hundred percent. Absolutely. The, um, the 3d, I think, um, flare is, is really what they, they like to see. And that's, that's the point. I've seen a lot of people do these thin slice 2d flare sequences and you lose too much S and R when you do that. And the other thing to remember about signal to noise ratio, 
signal-to-noise ratio is really, really important when you have low contrast uh, struck, when you have a low contrast type acquisition. Um, and when you reduce your signal-to-noise ratio, what you're actually, what you're really reducing, because your eye doesn't see signal-to-noise, what the human eye sees is contrast to noise. So in when you reduce the S and R... I think that's a really important concept that I would love for you to expand upon because you do a great job of talking. Because a lot of people are like, you know, um, wow, what are you talking about here as far as, you know, we don't see, you know, we, we're we seeing signal, but we're really just seeing that. So explain that if you wouldn't mind. You do a great job of that. Okay. Well, you know, like, like said, Kristen just said, we don't see signal. Um, what you see is contrast. And so, for example, <clears throat> if you were to go outside on a relatively clear, a clear day and uh, the moon is up, you can see the moon, and let's say it happens to be, you know, kind of near sunset, and as the sun sets, the, the moon does not get brighter. The, the moon is the same brightness uh, that it was, you know, 30, 40 minutes previous. What happened was the contrast improved. The the background got darker, and when the background got darker, it improves the contrast. So, you know, the the human eye actually uh, doesn't see low contrast well at all. I mean, if you've ever tried to match blue and black socks in a dimly lit laundry room, uh, you know what I'm referring to. You you have to take them over to the window to look at it. Um, interestingly enough, not to you know, harp on, on my issues. I had, um, I had cataracts. I had cataracts. <laughs> There's not enough time. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. But I had, I had that's all right. It's, it's, I, I had that, I had that coming, you know. Um, <clears throat> but at any rate, I had uh, cataract surgery in August of uh, this past year, 22. And, um, I was actually been very pleased with it because I was a candidate for these multifocal lenses and I no longer need to wear glasses. And I've been in glasses since the 70s. And um, it's just, you know, wow. I, I went for weeks thinking I've left my glasses somewhere. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, it's, it's really interesting. But my point is what I did notice change, and, and I really just didn't expect it or didn't Nobody said anything about it. My low contrast detectability has been reduced. I, I have I have a lot more problems seeing low contrast items. And, and an example of that is if you go, uh, you know, if I'm looking at something and it's it's really poorly contrast, not black white, you know, it's got very low contrast. I have to get a get my iPhone out, turn on my flashlight, you know, put the light on it because I just can't see low contrast anymore. And apparently that has something to do with the lens, you know, when you get you know, your natural lenses replaced with any kind of a fake lens, I mentioned it to the optometrist and he goes, yeah, you're pretty observant. I go, well, okay. So I guess this is normal. So, <clears throat> you know, and you'll see, you notice as you get older, you know, you don't, you go into a restaurant and the, the, the font on the menu is about the same color as the background. And you notice everybody's like pulling out their phones or i've even been to restaurants where the waiter comes over and holds a flashlight for you it's like you know dude it's too dark in here if you've got to carry a flashlight for people to read the menu then somebody in the restaurant needs to you know 
turn on the lights. Okay, sorry, I digress. Um, well, we anyway. use our, well, we use our cell phones now, you know. I oh, mean, yeah, truly, right. I've had to do that many times. Yeah, I know. that's that's what you do when you get. That's why you, you have a cell phone when you get older. Um, so anyway, but the point is, the human eye really only sees about. I don't know. I've I've seen this in different uh, different publications or something, but it only sees something like 30-something shades of gray. It really really doesn't see a lot. So, so basically, I know I don't know where the uh, 30 shades of gray come from, or 50 shades of gray, because <laughs> you can't see that many. I remember when that movie came out, my wife asked me, she said, we're going to go see that movie? And what movie? She said, 50 shades of gray. I said, I don't know why the human eye can only see 32 shades of gray. <laughs> didn't go over very well. But anyway... <clears throat> So going back to the point, the when you have a when you have an exam where the acquisition is low contrast inherently between structures, then this is where SNR is extremely important, and a, this is a perfect way to talk about another component of app optimizing is pituitary exams. When imaging uh, pituitary, that the most important component of that exam is rapid imaging, T1-weighted imaging, uh, post-scatalinium very early on. And that's because you'll recall that the pituitary is a normally enhancing structure. And when you're looking for a microadenoma, a microadenoma does not enhance right away. Now, a little bit of history here for you. Back when uh, we started doing pituitaries <laughs> way back in the in the 80s or 90s, or after gadolinium came out, actually, because didn't do contrast before contrast. But after gadolinium came out, we started doing the pituitaries. You, you could not do rapid uh, imaging. But number one, we only had spin echo. We, we didn't have spoiled gradient echo. So you just had conventional spin echo. And you couldn't do the rapid dynamic imaging that a lot of people do today. In fact, that's what's kind of required by the ACR, if I'm not mistaken, is to do uh, rapid dynamic imaging. At any rate, you couldn't do it. And so what you wound up doing was you would inject the patient with the gadolinium and then very quickly get the T1-weighted images. And you, you really wanted to, we were doing good if we could get it within, you know, get a scan within five minutes. Uh, but we, or time of five minutes, but we had to get it very rapidly. And it was difficult. And in fact, uh, many times uh, you really didn't catch it. If, if it went past several minutes, then the microadenoma filled in and it just went, you know, downhill. I mean, it was, you know, downhill pretty fast. So that was the initial challenge. Now, there are a couple of things that came out and, and were introduced. Uh, one I want Kristen to speak to um, because of her experience working with Phillips historically. But at some point, there was a paper that, um, and I believe it came out of Emory, if I'm not mistaken, that advocated the use of lower dose or half dose of gadolinium. Uh, as a you know, as opposed to zero point one millimole per kilogram, zero point zero five, and the reason for that is that it wouldn't be as bright, and so if if the 
pituitary gland was not as bright, then you might see the microadenoma. But then there was a development in uh, data acquisition, and the first group to actually do this and have something product version for this was Philips. And then I'd like Kristen to uh, give you the background on that one. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, thank you for that um, segue over to this. You know, when I um, worked at Philips as a technologist, um, we were one of the only sites and we were a show site um, that actually used this because I eventually left and went and did applications for Philips. And when I visited sites, um, they were just doing, you know, either just regular imaging with gadolinium, their, the way that they acquired their dynamics. Um, as Bill's saying, you know, it's very easy to miss these enhancing microadenomas, which is so important. Well, um, as a technologist at Emory, and this was in the 90s, um, I would say early to mid 90s, there was a technique that Philips had that was very unique. So people coming from other vendors really didn't know about it. Most people at Philips um, that um, were new to the vendor didn't know about it. And um, it was a technique called keyhole. And um, absolutely very revolutionary, especially for that time period. And the way that it acquired is why it was so um, unique. And so what we're looking for is very rapid acquisition of the central lines of K-space where the contrast is located. And so what Keyhole accomplished, um, we would want around three to five slices just really thin slices right through the pituitary. And then per slice, we wanted around 15 dynamics, so 15 different little time points. And so what Keyhole accomplished is actually at the very beginning, it did this first um, data acquisition where it acquired the high order profiles, the um, periphery of K-space, where our spatial resolution is. So it would acquire kind of those data points and it would save those. And then you would have that information. And then when you gave the contrast, this is even before we had power injectors. Um, I, we didn't have power injectors when I actually left to go do applications for Philips. If that tells you how long ago this technique was out there. Um, so once you started giving the um, contrast to the um, the patient, then it would just rapidly acquire just those central lines of K-space, allowing us to visualize these very tiny microadenomas. And we had very great success, even as Bill was talking about, um, you know, with using a lower dose to be able to visualize those. Um, in some cases, even a half dose, Bill, I'm not sure if you remember that, but um, I yep. think that's maybe the premise of that whole paper, if I mind, um, if I can recall that correctly. But that was absolutely, you know, giving our age away. That was something that existed that now has over this many years, that's 30 years ago, ugh, scary to say, um, 
But now it's something that has segued into something that we use almost on um, a daily basis for facilities that are actually doing contrast-enhanced studies that allows us to catch things and to see more phases, um, whether that's we're looking at arterial through venous or mRNArography, um, it allows us to catch more information. So, you know, Bill, I'll kind of hand that back over to you if you want to talk about the new ways that we acquire case space with these contrast-enhanced studies. Well, the the thanks, Chris. the The keyhole technique is the basis or background behind uh, the more uh, current techniques that we probably know as time resolved imaging, uh, twist on Siemens, uh, tricks on a GE four D is called. I believe it's called on other systems, but it's uh, based on that keyhole technique and it's, it's kind of interesting when I teach an MR registry review class on the uh, content specifications ART content specifications they specifically mention keyhole and um, a lot of people really don't know you know what that is but it's you know it, it is in, in essence the was the very first uh, time resolve technique now that being said, when we move to, and let's let's keeping that in mind, talking about optimizing uh, various protocols for for various reasons, let's let's talk just a little bit now about time resolved MR angiography. And and time resolved MR angiography, as most people would probably generically know it today, again twist, uh, treat, tricks, whatever you know, sequences. What you're doing is exactly what Kristen described, is you uh, first acquire all the data points in case space, but then they uh, refresh the central points. And then today, instead of doing lines of case space, which makes it even better, you're doing just really the central data points, which contribute to the image's uh, signal and therefore contrast. The faster you scan, the faster the acquisition protocol it's almost counterintuitive, the less con- less gadolinium you need. Um, if you think about it, if, if you've ever done a test dose, and on a test dose for an MRA or whatever, you'll only give like two cc's of gadolinium, followed by, of course, a 20 ml at least saline flush. Now, each frame or image in this test dose is about a second or so. I like them to be a second because I can just count the images and I can tell you know when to start this when I need to start the scan. But at any rate, um, if you're only using you're only using two mLs, and if you've ever done one of these test doses, you'll look at it and wow, I can actually see the gad in the aorta or whatever area of the body you're using, see it pretty good, and it's only two mLs. The reason you see it really well is it's only a one-second scan. If you did a 30-second scan, think about it, filling case space over 30 seconds, then the gadolinium is not going to be in high concentration. It's going to be in high concentration in a very short period of time. But if you have a really, really short scan, then however much gad you got in there is at its max concentration in a very short time, and you can see it. So the point being... 
when you look at time-resolved sequences today where each individual time point, which, by the way, would be referred to as uh, temporal resolution. So let's say you're acquiring a set of data, a full 3D data set every five seconds. Well, that five seconds would be your temporal resolution. And you don't need a whole lot of gadolinium to do that. If you listen back to some of our episodes, previous episodes um, with Dr. Howard Raleigh, um, he talked about uh, splitting a dose where he, in a, in a stroke protocol, would take 20 mLs of GAD and use 10 of it for the perfusion sequence and the other 10 for the contrast enhanced part of it. Now, with regard to contrast enhancement, before we get into um, gadolinium-based, you know, gadolinium agents, um, I want to talk about something that often follows along with a contrast-enhanced exam, and that is the use of some sort of a fat suppression technique. Now, we have several techniques for suppressing or removing the signal from fat. We have what most of us just call fat sat or something like that. Phillips calls it a spur. Uh, but uh, spectral presaturation, you know, the, the standard uh, chemical presaturation where you s differentiate water from fat based on its precessional or resonant frequency. That's the standard way. You'll center on water. The computer knows where fat is, hopefully. And, you know, uh, usually about 100 hertz wide RF pulse is laid down at the centered around the frequency of fat. And it works really well until it doesn't. Um, one of the really big problems with this technique is its reliance on a very homogeneous field, and it needs a relatively high field because you have to have you have to have sufficient chemical shift. It's quite honestly not that robust. I mean, it's been around forever, and that's what people do. Uh, and, and keep in mind, if you're on Phillips, the, the term spur falls in with that as well. Um, it's uh, quite honestly, you know, historically people have vendors have done different things uh, where they may flip that saturation pulse, may go a little bit beyond 90, which is what Phillips does, which is why they call it spur for spectral inversion recovery. It's not a full 180, but just a little past 90. But that will determine how dark the fat can get. Now, like I said, it works really well until it doesn't. And it's usually, uh, you know, related to inhomogeneities in the field. I know Kristen's got a lot of experience with breast MRI, and that's, you know, another place where fat saturation works really well, but it can have some issues, correct? Um, absolutely. So um, there is a um, breast radiologist that I've worked with um, out of UCSF, and uh, she was at Grand Rounds um, when I was actually on faculty at um, Emory University, and um, we, she was talking about fat saturation techniques, and um, to definitely do a regular T2 um, pre-contrast, um, uh, and then to do a T2 fat saturation, 
Um, and if the fats, and obviously we want that there for, you know, just the, the range of contrast, but also to see if the fat suppression worked at all. And if it was inhomogeneous, then she definitely said, don't use any fat saturation at all. Because once you do the money scan, so to speak, meaning you're giving, doing the dynamics with gadolinium, if you're starting with um, an, a system that's not homogeneous enough to do complete fat suppression, then subtraction will not work appropriately after the fact. And so a lot of people have trepidation about that because, you know, they say, well, you know, patients here, you know, they, they move, we're unable to get good subtraction. And I've never really understood that. Um, and maybe it's because we do too many sequences because in Europe, the patients, it's used constantly overseas. Maybe they use less sequences or their patients are more compliant. So um, I raised my hand, and I'm not sure if Bill was referring to this or not. So um, there's SPUR, spectral inversion recovery, and then there's also something that's available on multiple vendors called SPARE. Um, That's spectral adiabatic inversion recovery, and that does a sweeping, a range of frequencies that is, um, and trust me, there's a point here that goes back to breast imaging, um, that does a range of frequencies, so you're more likely to get more homogeneous fat saturation. So I raised my hand, petrified with all of these radiologists at Grand Rounds, and um, I asked her, I said, you know, when you're talking that you're using traditional fat saturation, um, which would be i.e. spur, S-P-I-R, on the Philips at that time, um, why would you not use trembling um, the spare technique? And she actually said, good question. I'm glad you asked that. And um, the reason is, is because you are compromised as far as your temporal, um, i.e. your spatial, you make a choice, you know, MR is always a choice. You're going to make a compromise in other areas. So spare is not utilized in that fashion, but that's the reason that spare exists is when you don't have these homogeneous um, environments um, to create a more homogeneous fat sat. But if, if you leave this conversation about breast imaging with anything, it's if you are doing your T2s without fat saturation and you run a very quick one with fat saturation on a breast patient and you don't have homogeneous fat saturation with the technique you're using, do not use fat saturation on your contrast enhanced study. And I would say this pretty much, uh, I'll let Bill pipe in in just a second, don't do this anywhere. People are afraid of subtraction. It works beautifully um, when done appropriately. And so um, that's, it's just really important to pay attention to that, especially with breast patients. And Bill, I don't know if you know of other examples or if you want to help people not be so nervous about doing subtraction techniques. Well, I mean, subtractions, um, you know, done a lot actually in MR angiography, but there is a really important point on this. And that is if you 
if you don't have good homogeneous fat suppression, when you subtract, um, I think it's like Billy Preston says, nothing from nothing leaves nothing, you know? So, oh, yeah, I mean, that's not that bad. But anyway, so the point is, you know, if you're going to if you're going to have bad fat <laughs> saturation, sorry. that's right. If you're going to have bad fat saturation, then uh, you know, subtractions were uh, the thing. Now, there's that, which brings me to another point uh, that I want to talk about before we now before we then move specifically uh, toward the end here to talk about uh, optimizing with gadolinium. And that is another type of fat suppression technique that's been around before the days of what we know as, you know, standard or traditional chemical fat saturation. And this is called a Dixon technique. You know, uh, this was developed by Dr. Tom Dixon. Uh, he was out of Emory. I believe he's somewhere else now. But uh, he had been at Emory, was at Emory for a long time. And this goes dates back to the 80s. His, one of his first papers was actually in the 80s on this Dixon technique. And Kristen and I have a, have a colleague that we both know that worked at Emory uh, back in those early days in 80. And uh, it was Lou Ann Culbreth. Oh, she won't care me, care me tell. And she, she told me about that. I remember the story about this. And they would do this Dixon technique and Dixon technique is based on chemical shift. It's based on a frequency difference between water and fat. And it essentially would acquire an entire, uh, an image data set using a TE in phase. And then it would acquire an entire data set using a TE out of phase. So you had two points of measurement. That's what's called a two point Dixon. And then the reconstruction would be able to analyze the phase information from those two data sets and give you what would be a water-only image, so the image is only from water protons, and then give you a fat-only image, so the image is only from fat protons. And so the water-only image then would, would be, you know, essentially a fat-suppressed image. There is no signal from fat. It's been removed. And, and it worked really well. The problem was in the late 80s, the computer processing power that we had at that point in time um, was not all that great. And it took them literally overnight to reconstruct these images. And uh, so, you know, it just it, it worked well, but just couldn't be implemented um, clinically because of that computer restraints. Well, that's not a problem anymore. So now in current MRI systems, Dixon technique is, is widely available. Variations of the Dixon technique are widely available. It's either called Dixon or some variant of something like that, Dixon technique. It may be, I've heard it called water fat separation on uh, one of the vendors and GE's version of it is called IDEAL, and it's an acronym, which I, of course, cannot tell you what it means. But Dixon-based techniques are, in my opinion, just for what that's worth, in my opinion, the best techniques for doing uh, images without any signal from fat, okay? 
And um, I've seen data on breast being used in breast now. They're able to get it the scan times down to where it's you get a, you get enough temporal resolution on the breast sequences. Dixon technique is not as um, it's it's not as sensitive to inhomogeneities. Uh, in in fact, some of the vendors do uh, phase mapping techniques to kind of minimize th these issues. And it also can be done at any field strength. Uh, it's just a matter of when, you know, the echoes are selected. And so I think most people are kind of familiar with the Dixon technique, but it would be my go-to for brachial plexus, for feet and ankles. The, these are the places where you have difficulty doing fat saturation. Uh, it, would, it would also be my uh, sequence of choice fat saturation for post-contrast spine imaging. And here's why. When you do uh, one of these Dixon techniques, you can, uh, it may do it automatically, or you may, have to, you may have to tell it, depends on your system's vendor's implementation of it. But you can tell it to give you all of the different images that it can reconstruct. And it basically can reconstruct four different images. It'll give you a, quote, in-phase image, which has also been called a combined image. It's an image that's got both water and fat. So it looks like what you would expect, just standard image, whether it's T1-weighted, T2-weighted. looks like a regular T1 or T2-weighted image. Then it will also give you an out-of-phase image, which is kind of interesting to look at, but may or may not be helpful. But then it will give you a water-only image or a fat-only image. Now, keep in mind the water-only image then would be your fat suppressed sequence. So one of the benefits of doing Dixon technique, and in particular for lumbar spine post-contrast, is that you get both a fat sat and a non-fat sat sequence in the same acquisition. And I think, Chris, and I think you would agree that that's beneficial because there's a lot of sites where the radiologists, because they got different radiologists, they'll say, I want a fat sat and then I want, or I want a non-fat sat and then I want a fat sat. Now, now you're doing two sequences. Would you agree? I mean, that, that would eliminate a sequence. Yeah, with the um, Dixon-based techniques, I've seen it, you know, as Bill is saying, ideal, which is iterative something, um, I'll leave it there, um, is what it stands for. Then M-Dixon techniques um, with a small M, you know, I think that you get so much um, bang for your buck, you know, the M-phase, out-of-phase. I think that it's being utilized and, and it's like you're talking about the way that the, the phases are and, and you're so much smarter with the physics part of it. Um, you know, it's so much more robust. Um, I, I see it used in orthopedics. And to your point that you're making here, it, it literally, um, it gives you, um, it, it makes multiple radiologists happy. When does that happen? Um, <laughs> right. At the it's same like time. It's like, <laughs> it's like, you can't do that. That's impossible. Well, right. it's like, you know, right, right, so right. here we go. Yay, yay, yay. So I, I do believe that it's something that just because of how um, uh, successful it is and um, then just what you get within one sequence, the way that it's acquired. And now that it's possible, I mean, it took so much time um, and back in the early 90s, like you're saying, you know, it just wasn't it wasn't something that was feasible. Now that it is, I think it's being used constantly in all areas of the body. Yeah, I do. I think I do see it used more. Before we leave this, I want to I want to bring something up here, a paper 
that I ran across, which was kind of interesting. And I thought, well, this sounds interesting. And there were actually a couple of papers on this same topic. When I went to research it, I saw it originally something on antmini.com. And then I, then I kind of followed the link and wound up with this paper. And um, <laughs> so the general idea is it says uh, the title is MRI of nonspecific low back pain and or lumbar radiculopathy. Do we need T1 when using a sagittal T2 weighted Dixon sequence? In other words, because of the extra images you get with a Dixon sequence, do we need a sagittal T1? Well, you know, I'm, I was kind of interesting to see that. And I read this and uh, they compared, you know, the standard sequence to this and, you know, it had good agreement on it, but that's a pretty big thing asking a radiologist to give up a T1 weighted sequence on a lumbar spine. And so I went to the imaging center close by the house here, the place that will still allow me to come by and dink around a little bit. And so I went in there and worked with one of the technologists and I said, oh yeah, let's come up with this sequence. I want to do this, <coughs> excuse me, T2 weighted Dixon sequence and just do this in place of your regular T2 lumbar spine. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm coughing. T2 lumbar spine. And I said, you won't need to do your regular T2 because it's going to look, you're going to get a T2 weighted sequence out of it. But have the radiologist look at the T1 weighted sequence you do and compare it to the, the, the fat only image, let's put it's a fat only image out of a T2 and see if, how it compares to the T1. So she did it on a couple of pictures, on a couple of patients. And I, I don't think I'm um, violating any HIPAA thing here because I can't help but say, tell you this. It was, I found it kind of ironic. The very first patient on which she did this, the last name was Dixon. And I thought, well, oh, that's kind of, bizarre. Anyway, <clears throat> so she did that and I looked at the images and I did not like the T1. There was no way I'm going to uh, tell a radiologist to do this because when you look at the, the water, uh, I'm sorry, the fat only image out of this T2 weighted sequence. Yeah. It did look a lot like the T1, but the big problem was you couldn't see the spinal cord in the spinal canal. And that's a big problem. It was just black. The spinal canal was black, no spinal cord on the sagittal. Couldn't see it. That's not going to fly. But here's what I did find. And I can't remember, Kristen, if I told you this, and I was looking at the images. And what was interesting was the water-only image. Now, keep in mind, this is a T2-weighted sequence. And when we do a water-only image, that means there's not much signal, if any, from fat, and so what you actually got was a T2-weighted fat-suppressed image, right? So you had a T2-weighted image with no fat signal. And a lot of sites do a stir. This site in, in particular does a stir routinely in the lumbar spine. Well, if you could get a really good quality T2 fat-suppressed image, wouldn't that be showing you pretty much the same thing? And uh, I think it does. And that may be something to, to think about. I'm going to go back and look at that again, talk to some of the radiologists. But I thought it was kind of interesting. It wasn't what the paper came up with. But when I looked at it, I thought, well, crap, this is a good way to do one sequence and eliminate another one if you can eliminate the, the stir. And, and again, it's very uniform in its fat suppression. Um, any thoughts on that, Kristen, before we move on into, into contrast media specifically? 
No, I mean, that's exactly how you explained it to me. And so, um, no, I do remember the conversation and I, I think that you were very thorough. So we can go ahead and, and move on into uh, kind of what we're going to wrap up with today. Yeah, which would, be, which would be the use of contrast media. Now, in terms of optimizing for the use of contrast media, there are several things that we think you should consider. Number one, is contrast media even actually indicated? In fact, the ACR, FDA, but mostly ACR, says that, you know, you should use, you know, gadolinium in only in those cases where it's really clinically warranted. And so there are many centers where, and we're talking big name centers and stuff, where the radiologist uh, in some fashion review every order or approve every order for gadolinium. Uh, in other words, they don't just give it because it was asked for. It's, uh, you know, and I've heard radiologists tell me this. They'll say, well, if he orders a cheeseburger, he gets a cheeseburger. And well, you know, the problem with that is, if gadolinium is not really indicated, I mean, think about this, and this is very rare, but patients do have adverse reactions to gadolinium. And if gadolinium is administered in a case where it's not clinically warranted, the patient is placed at a small but real risk when there is very little expected benefit from it. And so that's why I think it's very important that gadolinium, that you're giving gadolinium, that any order for GAD be double checked with a radiologist. I know. Uh, you at, know, let me uh, just uh, say this. You know, um, <laughs> and I didn't mean to interrupt you, but well, you no, know, that's I, fine, fine. I don't care. I need, to, I need to take a take a drink of water here anyway. I'm, <clears throat> I don't care either. I'm just, I'm just joking. Um, no, I just know that you know, uh, 15 years ago, not maybe not even that long ago, and I know much much more recent for other facilities. 15 years ago, um, I worked you know on um, a weekend shift, and I also helped out occasionally during the week. And during the week, for um, let's just throw something super simple out there for, you know, a um, brain that is ordered with and without for headaches um, during the week, always had it protocoled, um, even with the same group of radiologists, whether they were covering on the weekends or not, was always a brain without and then check for contrast. On the weekends, um, when there were tennis matches or there were golf tournaments or um, there was a, you know, a half marathon to be run and I, was, I worked a lot more on the weekends, um, many times we were told on a Friday, you know, we'd have our request for um, both outpatients and inpatients, um, at least the inpatients that we knew about. Um, the inpatients we could get protocoled, you know, on a Friday, um, but um, outpatients, you know, it was pretty much like Bill was, was saying, you know, if they order a cheeseburger, they're getting cheese on their cheeseburger. And so if a requesting physician, which is, we know, according to the ACR, you, you, they're excluded from this process. Um, if, you know, they would just say, you know, well, if they ordered it with and without contrast, that's what they're getting. And um, that is definitely for a multitude of multiple, multiple reasons is not the approach to take. Um, just like Bill said, you know, while, 
while it's very rare to have a contrast adverse event occur, it does happen. It does happen. So we have to be very, very mindful of that. And just flippantly saying, okay, you know, just give GAD to anyone that requests it because shame on them for ordering it for someone that, you know, just has headaches. That's, that's not the approach. Now, you know, fast forward, um, these days I would say over 90% of facilities, if not higher than that now take a much more serious approach. Um, and I think maybe it kind of came around and Bill, correct me around the retained GAD in the brain, um, people started getting really cautious about, you know, gadolinium administration. But um, yeah, that, you know, certainly, I, that certainly brought it to the forefront for sure. It, it did bring it to the forefront. And so, but that really shouldn't have been the reason. It should have been this way all along. And so, um, you know, just wanted to, to throw that out there. I believe we have come a long way, uh, maybe sometimes for the wrong reasons, but at least we are where we should be as far as really having the radiologist take a look at the requisition, what they're looking for, and the correct and corresponding protocol for that. The, the uh, Some friends of ours that work at Mayo Clinic, they have uh, a group of techs that they call them scrubbers. And one of the things that they, they do is they're scrubbing through the requisition request and scrubbing through the schedule to look for stuff to, you know, that stands out. And one of the things that they have them scrub for is, is contrast media and, you know, technologists working with radiologists for years, you really got a good feel of whether or not, you know, you may or may not need uh, gadolinium on somebody, certainly in those indications where you look at it and go, what the crap are we giving gad for this for? And, um, you know, that's, that's all part of working with, well with the radiologist and they'll go to the radiologist and the radiologist would either approve or, or uh, not approve it. The other thing to uh, giving GAD, covered that, I think. The other thing would be the dose. How much gadolinium do you give? Now, we've already talked about pituitary, that that's a well-documented clinical application where with standard gadolinium agents, you can give uh, less than a you know, standard dose. Um, also, if you were, if you think about it, if you're following up somebody with a meningioma, meningiomas are extra ax axial lesions, so there's no blood-brain barrier. So they Basically, all you got to do is show them a bottle of gadolinium and they'll light up. Um, you, you don't really need, you know, whole full dose of gad for that. And it's a, and in the, along the same lines, uh, acoustic neuromas, IECs, those are, again, extraxial. Those are going to light up a lot. And you don't need a higher dose for that. <laughs> Bill. Yeah. What? Unless I'm incorrect, I think you just said IEC, which you know we're hyper focused on with the International Electrotechnical Commission well, maybe and I changes. Did. Yeah, maybe, maybe <laughs> I, I don't did. know. Okay. I IEC. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe you thought I heard it. Maybe I said it. Maybe I thought I said it. Maybe you thought I said it. Anyway, maybe exactly. we're talking about the, <laughs> we're talking about the inner ear here, folks. Okay. And because it's, it's a type of meningioma, sort of. Um, at any rate, so these are things that right now you can look at. The other thing is to consider the relaxivity of your agent. You know, uh, Multihans has been around uh, for, for quite some time, and there are numerous 
studies out there because multi-hance's relaxivity or effectiveness is twice that of the regular agents. And there are numerous studies that show that a half dose of multi-hance is equivalent to a full dose of a standard agent in a variety of uh, applications, one in particular, the liver, and uh, also in some neuro stuff. But if you're looking for brain lesions, brain metastasis, it's really important, as you've heard in some of our other podcasts, um, it's really important that you see all the lesions. So using a standard dose, 0.1 millimole per kilogram, has shown of, of multi-hance has been shown to be equivalent to a double dose of a standard relaxivity agent. So this has been around for many years, and I don't know that people have really taken advantage of that. I mean, some people may have, some people haven't, but th this is well, well established. Now we have uh, a newly approved agent uh, the and I'm going to let Kristen speak to, to this primarily because she just uh, looked through a, a recent paper that was recently published on this. The the agent the chemical name is gadopiclinol, and it's going to be sold by uh, two different vendors under different trade names, uh, but it's it's the same uh, compound gadopiclinol. Uh, it uh, would be sold uh, by one vendor as Illucerim and by uh, Braco as uh, Vue. And so you may hear us use a trade name or we may just say got a pickle and all, but this is the one, uh, this is the one we're, we're talking about. <clears throat> this agent has extremely high relaxivity. Uh, the, one of the main reasons it does is because it incorporates two water molecules in its inner sphere, where every other gadolinium agent only incorporates one water molecule. And th that in and of itself accounts for approximately 60% of its increase in relaxivity. It also has these big uh, hydrophilic arms they're referred to, but they're chemical arms that will uh, associate with water molecules or involve some more water molecules. And so it, this, this thing basically involves a lot of water molecules, and that's why you get such a big effect from it. And in fact, uh, it's dose that is approved by the FDA, its standard dose is actually 0.05 millimoles per kilogram, meaning it's the standard dose of VUA or Lucerum, whatever, VUA is half of that of the other, of the other agents. So its standard dose is 0.05. So you're actually giving less gadolinium. And the interesting thing is you're getting huge benefits uh, over the uh, over the other agents. And Kristen, you want to speak to that uh, paper and we'll just kind of wrap up with that, I guess, if you, you want to take Absolutely. Yeah. So one thing I want to say um, about, we were talking about twofold increase as far as relaxivity um, with multi-hands, just um, it, it has been out for a long time, but just realize because it has this side chain, it's benzimethyloxine. Um, I think that's, yeah, I think that's what yeah, it's, it's called. Enough. 
Yeah. That's, yeah. That is definitely close enough for this late in the hour. Um, but what it does, it, it's a um, weaker transient interaction with protein. And so because of that, it um, makes the, the actual um, molecule much, much larger, which there um, in lies your um, a big change in the molecular tumbling rate. So by slowing that, then we're actually able to see the effects of the contrast administration much better. That's why when Bill's talking about using, you know, a half dose, um, I remember an MR angiography um, a study that was done, you know, giving a half dose of multi-hands gave you um, similar results as doing a um, standard dose of the um of the standard agent. Um, and so um, that's what you have there. And now we, we come out with the gadopiclinol, um, i.e. the VUA um, or the eleuserin. Um, then um, what's happening, the same thing's happening here um, because um, similarly, you know, but totally different processes um, because of the interaction with two water molecules. And so as Bill was saying, you know, you're looking at 0.05 um, millimole per kilogram. And Bill, you can correct me at any point, um, you know, that I'm incorrect. <laughs> Not sure. Anytime. But there's this um, this paper that I received and it was looking at um, gadapiclinol. Specifically, it was looking at VUA. And I'm going to say the names um, incorrectly, but I can say this word. It was called the the picture, um, just like it sounds. Picture paper is the way that, um, and it was an international randomized double blinded controlled crossover uh, phase three paper. <laughs> say that three times fast, and I'm going to say um, the two major physicians involved. Um, I hope I say their names correct: um, Lovner and Columban. And so um, my apologies um, if I said your names wrong, but what's just really interesting is, you know, they did um, patients, they had two different MRIs and they were done between two and 14 days apart and they had different endpoints um, with this picture paper. Um, and they were looking at um, CNS again. They're looking at border delineation, um, the internal morphology, um, and just the overall contrast enhancement. And they used, I always find this, nobody else gets tickled, as we say in the South, tickled um, like I do, but three blinded readers, um, radiologists. Um, <laughs> Right. Thank you, Bill. I just think it's funny when they say blinded readers, because to me, that's just interesting. But anyway, so those are the primary. And so these three blinded readers, um, we're also looking at lesion to background ratio, um, the um, percentage of enhancement, um, the contrast to noise ratio, um, just basically the overall diagnostic preference. Now, again, all of this is based upon looking at just standard agents that are out there with standard dosing and then overall adverse events. I'll just go ahead and address the adverse events right up front. They were similar across the board. Okay, so um, no appreciable difference there, no statistically significant difference as far as that was associated. It also wasn't like a super tiny paper. Um, it was around 256 or exactly 256 patients, um, randomized patients that were involved in this um, study. And so they were looking at inferiority. And um, basically, um, just to give you the numbers briefly going back, um, this was between, they were looking at um, VUA, gadapiclinol, 
um, or Gadavest and Gadavest. And um, again, the, the adverse events um, were actually lower with VUA, um, and it was at 14.6%, whereas with Gadavest, um, it was 17.6%, but also realize these are mostly injections site um, um, and non-serious types of adverse events. They would not uh, qualify as a serious adverse event. Um, what's important to realize is that when they, they took VUA, they compared it to Gadavist, um, it, which also, let's just be honest, they, they've always said, you know, now they're, they're twice the molar concentration. You give a lower um, volume, but you're giving the same dose. But with the gadapiclinol, um, whether it's um, the, the exact same thing, the VUA or the Eleuserin, you're actually giving a lower dose. This is big. Same, vo okay. same, same volume. And an interesting thing about that is the same volume. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's very a, good. It's, it's the same volume, but it's, it's actually a, a lower dose because it's you know, Which is less, the big, the big thing here is less gadolinium, right. right? So think about when everyone started, you know, getting all flustered about this gadolinium retention. Well, this, this answers a lot of the, you know, those questions and concerns, you know, well, if you want to, to go down that path, you truly are giving a lower dose. And like Bill said, you know, the volume, thank you for bringing that part up. Um, but the conclusion of this picture paper was um, VUA um, was not inferior in these CNS studies um, to, um, you know, at a half dose um, to the um, efficacy of the Gadavist. So that is... Um, that, that was it. And I, I think that it's it's just enormous. Now, this has been FDA approved, but clinically, as far as I know, Bill, in the United States, it's not going to be available until around, what, the May timeframe, and don't ever hold me to any yeah, type I don't of know. It's, it's 2023 yeah, it's gotta, at some point. Yeah, it's going to be, be in the, you know, maybe early first part of the second quarter. And it has to do with, uh, just in case you're wondering, FDA approved this like last year, late last year. But the reason it takes longer is because the FDA has to approve the uh, manufacturing facilities and all that kind of stuff and the labeling and uh, just, you know, FDA, Federal Delay Administration. So other than that, you know, it, it, we should see it soon. So, folks, um, I want to... Thank everybody for your time and your attention in this very first podcast, MRI cast of 2023. Thank you very much. Thank you. We all get proud. Yeah, good proud. Good, good crowd. It was a yeah, huge audience. A huge audience. <laughs> it's, a huge, it's a huge audience here. You know. I, I will uh, second anyway. that, Bill. Um, thank you, everyone, that does uh, tune in, not just live today, but um, at a later time at your convenience, um, whether that be through Spotify or whether it's actually through MRICast.com. Um, that's where you would need to go if you want to um, be able to get the um, CE credits for yep. this. Um, yep. Don't forget. So. Yep. Don't forget, we got CE credits for the large majority and large number of these that we've done. And you'll get that at MRICast.com uh, for sure. 
Okay, thanks. That'll bring us to the end of this. Kristen, thank you so much for uh, doing this with me. We, uh, again, appreciate uh, the sponsorship, Unrestricted Educational Grant from Bracco Diagnostics. It's awesome to do another set of these. So stay tuned. We've got some more coming for you. So thank you very much. We're gone. We're out of here. You're just going to have to get used to it. See you next time. Thanks. Bye. Thanks. Bye. been listening to MRI Cast. This program is made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Bracco Diagnostics. Music